written by uh, Jason Isabel, who's a great songwriter. And uh, I'm just going to do a little bit of it because it sets the table for what we're going to talk about. So if you want to close your eyes and pretend I'm Bradley Cooper. For a <laughs> but you'll have to close your eyes very tight. <laughs> Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Maybe it's time to let the old ways die It takes a lot to change a man It takes a lot to try Maybe it's time to let the old ways die I'm glad I can't go back to where I've come from I'm glad those days are gone, gone for good if I could take spirits from my past and bring them here, you know I would, you know I would. Nobody talks to God these days, nobody speaks to God these days. I like to think he's looking down and laughing at our ways, nobody speaks to God these days. Okay, you can open your eyes now. It's me. Where do you go? <laughs> Where do you go? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's actually it's it's a it's a well it's I guess what's the fourth remake of that movie? They all end sad. Okay, and uh, he's um, he's character who. Uh, even love can't help him get over his addictions and his demons. Actually, Jason Isabel, who's a great songwriter, wrote that. He himself has had to deal with that. So there's a little bit of him in the song as well. Our New Testament lesson today is Acts chapter 11, 1 through 18. It's a long passage, but it's a, it's a long story. And so it's kind of important to read the whole thing. So listen to the word of God. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? And then Peter began to explain to them, step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had fallen upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, 
John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same spirit that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. May God bless the hearing of this holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. There is currently on HBO a gripping series, and I'm not talking about the Game of Thrones, <laughs> although I do watch that. But uh, there is a series titled Chernobyl, which is about the Chernobyl disaster. It's very well done, and I've done a little research in the show. It's, it's very accurate. The, the, the writer and the producer was very careful uh, to get the details. And just to remind you, on April 25th, 1986, the unthinkable happened. The nuclear core in Reactor 4 at the nuclear power plant Chernobyl in Ukraine blew up. And for nine days, 400 times more radiation, more radioactive material than Hiroshima or Nagasaki was released into the atmosphere. Okay, there are still parts of the Ukraine and Belarus that will be uninhabitable for 80 years. Every country in the Northern Hemisphere had traces of the radioactive material. Um, certain parts you could, you wouldn't, you were not, you didn't eat mushrooms for years in certain countries. Uh, they still find wild boars who are heavily radioactive uh, throughout, throughout Europe. Now, there were 30 firemen and, and employees who died within the first days uh, and months from the radiation. Um, and at least another 15 died from cancer in the years following. Um, more than 5,000 extra cases of um, cancer and of the uh, thyroid. Uh, at least 15 children died from that. But given the nature of the former Soviet Republic and the failure of some of the reporting, there are people who estimate maybe up to a million people have been, uh, will be a million extra deaths will come because of this disaster. There was a scene in the movie that is actually from what happened. Um, these firemen uh, were right up next to the fire spraying water. Okay. Um, matter of fact, there's a scene, this actually happened as well, where one of the doctors was uh, helping one of the firemen in, and when she laid him down, she had a radiation burn from his hand. That's how radioactive these folks, these folks were. But there's a scene, there's two scenes of what's happening. One is the official uh, Soviet policy was to drink vodka. And that was supposed to keep you from radiation. Okay, all right, let me just tell you, drinking vodka may, if you drink enough of it, you may not care about radiation, all right? but it doesn't keep it from being reactive. And these firemen and these workers are being brought into hospital, and there's this, uh, an elderly doctor who's uh, putting milk on them, saying milk will help them. And there's a younger doctor who says, you're crazy, and they have to, to this day, they take all the clothes from the firemen off, and in the basement of that hospital, which has, of course, been abandoned, all those radioactive clothes are, are in that basement still, and they will be radioactive 
long after you and I are forgotten. Now, not every old idea is as dangerous as believing vodka can protect you from radiation. Um, And not every new idea is inherently good or bad, or true or false because it's old. Same thing with old ideas. An idea is not based, its merit is not based on whether it's new or old. But this is the challenge that is facing any religion in general, and Christianity in particular. Okay. What do we keep? What do we let go? What is essential? What is negotiable? What was it before a particular time? Okay. But as time changes, as our understanding of the Christian faith grows, what things do we have to change? Joseph Pelican, the great um, church historian uh, who taught at Yale for years, said this, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Okay. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Now, not every reason why people are less interested in church uh, is the fault of organized religion. By the way, I always, every time someone tells me I'm against organized religion, I go, well, you must not know us because we're not really that organized. Then, okay, I'd be happy if we were a little more organized, but we're not that organized, all right? Um, but there are some reasons that we have failed to adjust to the times that are our responsibility. Um, tradition, I like the idea. That, to me, I'm a, obviously, I'm a historian. I appreciate tradition. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, Tradition is the franchise of the dead. In other words, what's really important is we understand those who come before us have important things to say. So tradition means the church that's in heaven, okay, the church triumphant, as the Puritans would have called them, still get a vote, which is good, because they learn some things. We need to learn from them. But this idea that we just do things or believe things, because this is what we've always done, um, is very problematic. You see... The idea that doctrines and the faith is a dynamic thing is already in the Bible. You know, perhaps one of the greatest cataclysmic effects ever for a religion to go through was when the Jewish people in 587 BCE lost their temple, they lost the king, they lost the land. What are the three, the three promises? All the promises that God had given Abraham plus the promises that God gave David were all wiped out by the Babylonians. Now they returned to the land 60-some years later, right? Okay. And they rebuilt the temple. But the king never came back. That's part of the idea of Messiah comes from all these promises in the Bible that were made to David about his people or his progeny always being on the throne. Those promises never got fulfilled. And that idea became our idea, or the the late Jewish idea of the Messiah, which Jesus Christ is Jesus Messiah. Also, at the end of what we would call our Old Testament period, prophecy ceased. Matter of fact, the Jews talked about this. They wrote about that. There was a time and period where prophecy no longer happened. A couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. And that was also something that had a dramatic effect on Judaism. Probably the greatest and dramatic, most dramatic thing is that the Messiah came, at least we believe he came, 
But he got crucified. And the resurrection, which everybody was hoping for, happened, but only for one person. And so this was a dramatic thing that, you know, when our passage takes place, these are still new ideas that they're working through. And the report Peter gives today is of even a more radical change. Something that happens in chapter 11 of Acts is something that you and I are still feeling the effects of today. We are direct beneficiaries of what happens in chapter 10, in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. Because this is about the full inclusion of Gentiles into the covenant community. The discovery that Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jewish people, but he is the Savior of the world. That God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Father of Jesus, is the only true God, the God of all. What's interesting, chapter 11, the text I read for you today, is basically retelling what happened in chapter 10. When Peter is summoned to Caesarea, or asked to come to Caesarea by Cornelius. Now, what's really interesting, okay, why in the world, because there's an economy of space when you're writing, why in the world would the writer of Acts, which I believe is Luke, okay, why in the world would he say, use two whole chapters to say the exact same thing? When you're a parent, why do you say the same things over and over again? For two reasons, right? One, they're important. Or two, they're not listening to you. And usually it's both, right? (laughs) Yeah, I was was hanging out with two of my grandchildren yesterday, and the idea that you shouldn't run into a parking lot is something really important for a two-year-old to learn. Like his mother's going, okay, be careful. When his mother's not looking, I'm going, <laughs> I didn't hit him. <laughs> you know, I, I don't believe that. You want to shock that in their system. Running in front of cars is very, very bad, right? Right. So it's repeated because it's something that the early church had trouble learning. It's important. Now, Caesarea. It's on the coast of um, It's on the the Mediterranean coast, just south of Tel Aviv, okay? You can go still see the ruins there today. It was one of Herod's great building projects. At the time of Jesus, at the time of this writing, it was the provincial Roman capital for Judea and and Roman Syria, Palestine, Palestine. So it's the most important Roman city, governmental city, trade city in the whole region. And we're told in chapter 10 that Cornelius is the centurion of the Italian cohort. Okay? Now, what's important about that means that most of the, of the uh, soldiers in the legion that was stationed there were mercenaries made up of Syrians. Okay? Now, the Syrians, most of them probably were not Roman citizens, but they were Roman subjects. All right? But the Italian cohort was made up of people from Italy. It wasn't a trick question. (laughs) And a centurion, it technically means a ruler of a hundred. But really, these uh, these centurions were actually like a battalion commander. Okay, Uh, a Roman legion was made up of when it was fully staffed, five thousand five thousand soldiers. They were divided into ten cohorts. All right. So this guy was in charge of five hundred. He would be equivalent to a lieutenant colonel. 
Okay, so not a, not a small not a small position by any means. Right now, Cornelius was part of a group called the God Fears. That's actually a technical term in Hellenistic Judaism. Okay, these were people who were very attracted to the Jewish faith, particularly its monotheism and its ethnic uh, its its ethics, the fact that the kind of good life you led. Okay, and so these were people who would often go to synagogue. Many of them financially supported the synagogue. Okay, uh, They said the prayers. They said the Jewish prayers. They believed that Yahweh was the God, the only God. Uh, they often gave money to causes and to the poor. But they did not become circumcised okay? for lots of different reasons. Right? Not just the obvious ones. All right? Not just the pain one. But no, because... That marked you as, the, the circumcision was a uniquely Jewish thing at this stage. And so it would have been career suicide. There was a lot of reasons not to do it, okay? But because they weren't circumcised, they were not considered part of the Jewish, the Jewish folks. They'd be like kind of like the unbaptized who would come to church, though more separated. And so Cornelius believed in God, and Cornelius had a vision that, God, he was to be given something. So that's how chapter 10 happens. Peter ends up going. He has this vision because Peter's kind of reluctant to go because he's not supposed to eat with a Gentile. You're not supposed to have that kind of table fellowship with Gentile because Gentiles were perpetually ceremonially unclean. Now, I don't have time to get into all of this idea of why table fellowship was so important. But in the first century, it was one of the ways, the important distinctives that Jews kept themselves separate from the world. And for them, being separate from the world was not a matter of being snobbish. It was not a matter of necessarily feeling culturally superior. For them, retaining some kind of cultural purity was holding on to their God and to their faith when they were surrounded by hostile pagan forces and pagan beliefs. So, again, the particulars of it we find strange. The co- it's still the kosher laws to this day. Okay, all the, all the washings, all the ceremony cleanses. But at heart, this is what they had left, their sense of who they were as a people. They were slaves in their own land, right? There was no king, but they had their identity of God's people. So, when... Peter transgresses this basic idea of who we are as a people. The Jews who follow Jesus in Jerusalem are confused because at this point they still thought Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. I grew up, uh, I was born in West Virginia, but grew up in South Central Pennsylvania. And there were a lot of um, Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, different kind of Anabaptist groups. And a lot of the women wore bonnets or coverings, right? If you go to Lancaster, you may still see that. Some of you may be around that. It's kind of, it's like a yarmulke for women, okay? And there are biblical passages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, who say women should be covered, their heads should be covered. That's why Orthodox Jews, women sometimes, you know, cut their hair and wear wigs. They always can keep it covered. Matter of fact, I've known some spurious Pentecostal groups that have their women wear covering, and some of you, there was a point, at least in church, where Roman Catholic women kept covered, right? Okay. Well, <laughs> there was this girl in, like, in my grade school, and her name was Esther, and she had fire red hair, okay? And, uh, and she wore patent leather suit, shoes. You know why I knew they were patent leather? Because Esther would always attack us boys 
and she'd kick us in the shins with these hard shoes. Okay. And so to this day, we all, all of us who went to that grade school have indents in our ankles from Esther. And we had this theory that maybe the bonnet made her angry. Yeah, yeah, we had someone say, someone one time, one of my friends said, maybe that thing, like, maybe that's sticking in her head. Maybe that's why she's always trying to kick us, all right? And so they, we called, they were called the bonnet women, okay? It was almost like a scary superhero, a villain, the bonnet woman, all right? Uh, so, we, you know, they were, they were there, but they sometimes were assimilated, sometimes not. And later on in high school, I had friends of girls who came from that tradition, and then at some time, some of them stopped wearing it. But for some of them, it was like a crisis of faith that they really struggled whether or not to take this off because they identified, they identified that this is what it meant for them to be a Christian. Okay? And that was a sincere belief. So if you, make, if you believe something is an essential, it becomes that for you. But what's the danger in that? Right? I think all of us here would agree that being a Christian woman doesn't mean you have to keep your hair covered. And that even if you think that, that should not be something that's an essential. We do that all the time. Remember the story of the bronze serpent in the Old Testament? That when they were in the book of Numbers, when they, were, they, they had done something wrong, and God sent fiery serpents to bite them, and a bunch of them died, and, and then Moses made this bronze serpent. And they, if you looked at it, you were healed. Okay? Weird story. I'm not going to explain it. Okay. I have no real explanation for why that happened or worked. What's interesting, fast forward 600 years later, during King Hezekiah's reform, you can read about in 2 Kings, that bronze serpent was still around. But they had it sitting up in the temple, and they were worshiping it. Hezekiah had it destroyed. The thing which God gave to help them 600 years later is an idol keeping them from the living God. And that's the problem sometimes with some of our beliefs. Peter needed both a direct revelation and a direct experience of the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. And according to Galatians, he still didn't get it about 10 years later. Paul and him have a fight about it. Um, So for God's work to happen in the world, their understanding of clean and unclean, And who was a part of God's family had to change. And if you change about who's in and who's out, you're really, who is your God? Is your God so small that only people like you are in heaven? And I know people who are like that. I've been a part of churches for a while that were kind of like that. Or is God bigger than we can realize? Now, the God is the God of all seems obvious to us now. But it was not obvious in the early church. It's certainly not obvious for the early followers of Jesus who were Jews. And we in our own time run the risk of limiting God as well. You know, it's not about who's clean or unclean, right? But there are a whole other issues that Christians don't agree upon. And it's important for us to remember, and I think I believe this with my whole heart, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are children of God who know that they are and have consciously said yes to his grace. And there are children of God who don't know that. Let me repeat that. There are children of God who have said yes to his grace and know that and seek to worship and serve him. And there are children of God who don't for whatever reason. Now, okay, 
Are there nuances? Sure. But what is absolutely the case is everybody is a child of God. That doesn't mean everyone's in a covenant relationship with God. Don't get me wrong there. Okay. I think baptism really, really matters. I think profession of faith in Christ really, really matters. But, for God so loved the world. So we need to be open to the ongoing work of the reconciling work of the cross. And the implications of God so loved the world. Not every innovation of doctrine is right or beneficial. But it is inevitable that a living faith and a living Lord and the dynamic nature of the Holy Spirit will produce new and fresh insights. And over time, will reveal idolatries in belief, practice, and biblical interpretation. Every branch of Christianity, as well as progressives and conservatives, have sacred cow orthodoxies. Let me say it again. Every branch of Christianity, as well as both progressives and conservatives, have sacred cows of orthodoxy that need to either be smashed or at least stored out of sight where no one can see them. Now, <laughs> there's no clear formula how to do this. This is what we have to be careful about. Because there's a lot of debate about this. And there, throughout the history, slavery was debated about this. The role of women in leadership. What do you do about LGBTQ folks? All these things are, some of them are, have been solved, some of them haven't. Regardless if you identify as a progressive, conservative, somewhere in the middle, you or those who have influenced you have made accommodations. None of you are wearing coverings. None of us are eating kosher. Again, the list goes on and on. Okay. There is an American flag in our sanctuary, which the early church would have never allowed. Neither would the early reformers have allowed that. Okay. How to discern what's to be kept and what's to be given up. Now again, let me be very clear about that. You can't give up the fundamentals of the faith. The creed is not negotiable. If we give up Christ as being fully God and fully human, if we give up the Trinity, we're no longer Christians. Okay. So I'm not talking about negotiating those basic things. But how do you discern what, what is to be changed? What is, how do you discern if we have to look at Scripture in a little different way? Well, I have one virtue. I'm not going to, I don't have a formula today, but I have a virtue. I do have a formula, but we're not going to do it today. But the virtue is humility. And I think that's sometimes what's missing. New is not always good. What's in style is not always right. But the way we've always done this is the mantra of death. And so we have to be hum- humble as we approach these things. We have to always ask the question, are we promoting the, the great commandment, the last commandment, that we are to love as Christ is loved? Are we holding up the gospel of the liberating message of Jesus Christ? Are we growing in our Trinitarian faith? But other things are open to negotiation. One of the, one of the most... Uh, I don't even know how to say it. One of the people who, who, who straddled this tension better than anyone else. I've mixed my metaphors there, I'm sorry. But whoever, one of the people who I remember best at trying to live in this, this tension was a Mennonite bishop of all people. 
Merle Cordell, Merle Cordell, okay, a good South Central Pennsylvania name. And I've talked about him, I think I've used an illustration about him before. He was a person who, when he was as bishop, when he was serving as bishop, would wear the traditional Mennonite garb. They also had a Harley Davidson and a pool table in his basement. Okay. And because he was just such a good man and, and a devout Christian, he was able to somehow, I don't know how he did it, uh, he was able not to be a stumbling block to the traditionalist, but he was also not an impediment to those who try to move a new direction. And he had both kinds of churches in his uh, under his care. He had some churches, the church I went to, you have both forces in the same church. And one time I said to him, um, I said, uh, Bishop Cordell, he goes, call me Merle. All right, Merle. All right. I said, how? You know, I'm so impressed. Wow. How do you make this work? He smiled, and it was a weary smile that told me a hundred things without speaking a word. He says, how does it work about half the time? So, if we are going to try to negotiate what it means to be Christians in 2019, I can guarantee you that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. But, if we don't try, then we're not being obedient to the word of God. Peter is an example of someone who walked with Jesus and still didn't necessarily get what he was supposed to be doing. He didn't fully understand what Jesus was about. It took him a number of times. It took a vision. It took seeing it with his own eyes and almost getting beat up in Antioch by the Apostle Paul. Maybe to finally figure it out. But what I'm saying is we don't have the option not to listen to God. We don't have an option to try to figure out how do we embrace our world, our time. What's keeping us from doing that? Okay, and what do we have to hold on to so we do it that glorifies God? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.